It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John. Man. You thought you were on holiday, didn't you? I did. You did. Well, you kind of are, and we will be again very soon. But we just wanted to give our listeners a little bonus episode. And I'll tell you why. It's because we've got this conversation that I had a little while ago with Vivek Ramaswamy about uh, his book and about what he thought about capitalism, about what he thought about what was going on in the world, etc. And that doesn't sound very interesting, except for this guy is now really interesting. We'll get onto the conversation with him, but he's running in the 2024 Republican Party presidential primaries, and he's doing really well. What's the, what's the context for really well? Excellent. Like, that's like we're told <laughs> I mean, third you know. place, aren't we? By, by third our place. wonderful producers who keeps an eye on these yeah. things better than I do. So yeah, third place, it. 8% behind two, you know, really quite big names. But that's quite a lot of the audience to gather when you come from nowhere, really. So I think he's interesting. Oh, and definitely, think, yeah. He yeah. might be president. You know, he might have be happened. president. Then it'd be really interesting. And, yeah. and I'll have interviewed him early, <laughs> right? Okay, but listen, one of, the, one of the reasons, the other reasons I wanted to, to reintroduce this chat today is because we talk a lot in it about woke capitalism. The book that, that prompted me to interview him originally was called Woke. And we talk a lot about ESG, the nature of ESG, and what he expects to happen in that environment. And I feel, as I suspect you do as well, that the last year or so, and particularly the last few months, have suggested there's a lot of change going on in the way that companies are approaching ESG, thinking about ESG. A lot of change in many of the topics that have kind of been taken for granted over the last couple of years. Mm. And I may give you, for example, net zero in the UK, which was a complete political consensus that we must get to net zero and that we must do it as fast as possible. That was a full consensus until about two two weeks ago, right? Yep. Now it's not yep. consensus anymore. It's amazing how quickly things can change. So these are a lot of the topics that come up in this conversation with, with him. So I thought it might be interesting if we listened to it again and we provided our listeners, our loyal listeners, with the special bonus summer issue for them to talk about around the pool. Welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Merrin Somerset Webb. This week, as John and I just discussed, we're bringing you a podcast I originally recorded in November 2021 as part of the Money Week podcast. But they very kindly allowed us to bring to our Merrin Talks Money listeners a conversation with Vivek Ramaswamy, author of Woke Inc., biotech entrepreneur and a candidate in the 2024 Republican Party presidential primaries. We started our conversation with him sharing a little bit about his history and his experience in business, and we took it from there. 
The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I was born to the kid of immigrants in, in Cincinnati, Ohio, in the American Midwest, went to Harvard for college, studied molecular biology, thought I was going to be a scientist. Instead, I got into the world of biotech investing in 2007 when I graduated. did that for seven years. Mm-hmm. Three of those years I spent simultaneously at Yale Law School, scratching an itch in law and political philosophy that I'd never fully scratched. After I came back from doing law and uh, studying law and, and being a biotech investor at the same time, when I went back to being a full-time biotech investor, I realized that I had a lot of extra time on my hands. So I had a six-month failed stint as a stand-up comedian. It didn't go that well in New York City, but I did learn some lessons about actually, you know, they say you make a joke out of something that annoys you. Well, one of the things that annoyed me was actually the pharmaceutical industry. And so I decided to make a, you know, my, my version of a joke in the entrepreneurial sector was actually, instead of just telling a joke about it, let's actually fix the problem. And so I started a company that was designed to go faster in developing drugs and reduce cost. I started that company in 2014 called Royvent, led the company as CEO for seven years. We had our, our fair share of, of successes and failures along the way. But I think that at the end of the day, it was, uh, it was, a, it was a company that actually did a lot of things that I'm incredibly proud of, including developing medicines, several of which are FDA approved products today. I stepped down as CEO in January to write the book that I did and to be able to speak out on the topics that I'm speaking out on with candor. And so though I remain on the board, I have uh, really extricated myself from the day-to-day operations there so that I could separate my voice as a citizen from my prior voice as a CEO to talk about what I think is one of the defining issues of our time, the merger between the neo-progressive woke movement 
in big business, both in the United States and around the world, a curious phenomenon that I think goes to the heart of what it means to be a modern American in the American context and to the heart of what it means to live in a democracy, which I think is an issue that many democracies around the world are grappling with today. Okay, well, let's let's start with how you're defining the problem. Um, you know, you you talk about um, all sorts of wonderful phrases. You know, uh, woke smoke being a favorite. Um, and what is the core problem with companies getting involved in politics slash the social justice movement? Why does it matter? Yeah. So look, I think it. Uh, I think that it matters for a lot of reasons, but it matters for. One of the reasons that's different than what Milton Friedman worried about. So, so back when Milton Friedman was criticizing stakeholder capitalism, the model of capitalism where companies don't just pursue profits but advance social agendas, he criticized it from the standpoint of worrying that that would cause companies to operate less efficiently. And, and to be clear, I'm sympathetic to a lot of his arguments. My argument is actually the reverse. It's not that I worry that businesses are going to be less profitable. It's the opposite. It's that actually I worry not how politics will infect business, but how business will infect our politics by causing corporations to exercise power, not just in the marketplace of products, but in the marketplace of ideas, where at least in a democracy, everyone's voice and vote ought to be counted equally on how to address climate change, on how to fight racism. Do you use quota systems or do you do something else? Are you supposed to trade off higher prices for consumer goods in relation for lower carbon emissions or take a different approach? These are fundamental societal questions that ought to be grappled with in the open through free speech and public debate in the public square, according to a one person, one voice, one person, one vote system that is co-opted into a one dollar, one vote system when a small group of elite executives and investors get to decide behind closed doors what the right answers to those questions are. And to me, that's not America. That's a perversion of what America is supposed to be all about. It might be a version of how old world Europe used to operate, where a small group of labor elites and business elites and church leaders got together behind closed doors and decided the common good for everybody else. But at least speaking as an American myself, that wasn't the American way. And that's a big part of why I wrote the book is that I feel like this actual new trend was a betrayal of the of the workings of democracy itself. Okay, well, let's go back a step then and talk about why it is that companies have got involved in this in the first place. I mean, you're talking your in, in the book about the purpose of a company, the point of a company. And, uh, you know, companies should have maybe a purpose, but it's not necessarily clear that they should have a social purpose or a, or a moral purpose. And their purpose should be to make something and sell it, perhaps, as opposed to make something, sell it, and also lecture people about the climate. So how did we get to the point where the purpose has become, or many companies seem to believe they should have a social purpose as opposed to simply a capitalist purpose? Yeah. So look, I think that uh, I think there's no one simple answer I could give you in a few minutes. That's why I wrote a book to describe it. But but I'll give you a couple of pointers. I know you have two minute answers to all these questions. I know you do. <laughs> OK, OK. Well, I'll give you an example of an answer, which is that part of this story traces back to the 2008 financial crisis. Actually, it's an untold story. I laid out in the book for the first time. It's a story that traces back to the 08 crisis. And I saw it personally, by the way. I got my first job in the fall of 2007 at a hedge fund in New York City on the eve of the 2008 crisis. I saw this. I lived it firsthand. What happened was that big business in the United States was viewed as the bad guy, especially by the old left, following the ignominious bailouts of 2008, where bankers got paid a lot of money when times were good and got bailed out by the public when times were bad. 
this was a bad moment for capitalism. Side note, I actually think that that was just a version of crony capitalism, but we'll put that to one side. What happened was that the old left wanted to take money from those wealthy corporate fat cats and redistribute it to poor people to benefit poor people. Agree or not, that is what the old left wanted to do. But there was the birth of this new woke strand of the left that said that actually the real problem wasn't quite economic injustice. It wasn't quite poverty. No, it was racial injustice and misogyny and bigotry and so forth. Well, that actually presented the opportunity of a generation for big business in this country, for Occupy, for Wall Street. Because <laughs> if you're Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street is a pretty tough pill to swallow. But the new woke stuff was actually pretty easy. You applaud diversity and inclusion. You put some token minorities on your boards. You muse about the racially disparate impact of climate change after you fly in a private jet to Davos. This is actually pretty good work if you could get it. But they didn't do it for free. They effectively expected that the new left look the other way when it came to leaving their own corporate power structures intact. And so that worked so well for Wall Street. Actually, the way I joke around about it in the book is that you had a bunch of woke millennials get in bed with a bunch of big banks. Together, they birthed woke capitalism, and they used that to put Occupy Wall Street up for adoption. But then Silicon Valley gets in on the act and realize that they can use their power to censor certain content that the new strand of the left doesn't want to see on the internet. But again, expect that then the new left look the other way when it comes to leaving their monopoly power intact. And so and that's just one of the many undercurrents. But I offer it because it sort of reveals the essence of what's going on here, Marin, is it's, it's an arranged marriage. It's not a marriage of love, though. It's more like mutual prostitution. And the net result is what I call the illegitimate birth of the woke industrial complex, a new force in modern American life. And I think the same is true in the UK, by the way. I think the same is true in a lot of Western Europe. I think the same is true in Canada. Increasingly true even in places like Israel and India is the rise of a new force that is far more powerful than either big government or big business because it is a hybrid of the two that together can do what neither one of them can do on their own. And that's what the book is really all about. Okay. And one of the great middlemen to this, this new woke industrial process is, uh, is the fund management industry, right? Because you have That's correct. big men at the top of the fund man- management industry, you know, Larry Finks, et cetera, who control, you know, basically have a controlling shareholding in every big company there is and have kind of made themselves into gods. You know, Larry Fink can write his letter every year telling every company in the world what they should or shouldn't be doing, make it public so we can all see what he's telling everybody they should or shouldn't do. Um, and suddenly it's Larry Fink who gets to decide what the world does about climate change. Exactly. And by the way, to charge a fee for doing it, a hefty fee for doing it. Actually, a lot of what happened over the last couple of decades is that a lot of funds switched from actively managed higher fee funds to passive index funds. Well, BlackRock and the likes of them had to justify their own existence and the fees that they charge. So they decided to douse it in morality instead by becoming part of the new ESG movement, environmental, social, and governance factors. If that doesn't mean anything to you, and it sounds like it doesn't mean anything, then you probably have a good interpretation of it because, in my opinion, it really doesn't mean anything. It's a load of jargon that often comes in three-letter acronyms, ESG, CSR for Corporate Social Responsibility, DEI for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion. Somehow these come in sets of three. That's the optimized model for being able to actually pass over a societal filter that somehow takes it for granted. And that's what the ESG movement represents today is a movement in the asset management space that says that the people who control the most capital 
get to determine how companies ought to behave on so-called social and environmental matters, get to charge a thicker fee for doing it, and get to wear the mantle of being an investor who tells companies what to do. And that actually subverts Milton Friedman's narrative on its head, because Milton Friedman, again, would have told you that when an executive misuses his seat of corporate power, he's betraying the shareholder and ultimately failing to maximize value for the firm by pushing these orthogonal social values. They've turned that on its head now because they're saying, no, 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 you got it backwards. We are the shareholders. We are the ones that are demanding that you as the company behave in this way, or else we're going to take our money and put it elsewhere. We're going to fire you as CEO. Side note, actually, Milton Friedman had a point because the Larry Finks of the world, he's not investing his money. He's taking trillions of dollars of other people's money, many of whom actually disagree with the social agendas he's pushing, but simply don't know it because of the non-transparency of the financial system, and is using that as a pulpit to push values that actually would make the blood boil of the very people whose money he's entrusted with protecting. But that's a side note. We'll sort of put that to we'll put sort of put that to one side. The the difficult thing is that. What you do about it is a lot more complicated when that becomes the new norm for how capital is allocated. So one of the things I talk about in the book is because capital is now being allocated by these fund managers according to principles that don't directly map on to fundamental economic value, but map onto these social values instead, and because there's so many funds now flowing into that asset category, asset class category, especially as governments like the United States government implicitly pass regulations that sort of favor that kind of funds flow, we're at risk of creating a new kind of asset bubble, a new kind of market distortion, akin to the lead up, again, to the 2008 financial crisis, when governments around the world, including the U.S., fostered policies to favor home ownership. What did we do? We created a home ownership bubble that went burst hurt the very people it was supposed to help the most. By the way, I think the same thing may happen in the so-called ESG movement today, where more funds are flowing into the ESG category simply because it's a government-favored, culturally-favored, popular thing to do right now that creates the early stages of that bubble that, when it bursts, may actually hurt the very causes that it was supposed to help as well. Now, one thing I note in the book is that I might be wrong about that. And if I am wrong about that, it's going to be because actually the Larry Finks of the world do have the last laugh in the end. They say ESG is going to make for better investment returns over the long run. Well, there's one way in which they may be right, and that's through the capture of government itself. You look at actually the head of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, I believe, is actually BlackRock's head of ESG fund management. Look at the way Goldman Sachs has captured government in prior administrations, earning a seat for itself as seat of the U.S. Treasury Secretary. What I worry about is actually, you know what, maybe the ESG stocks do go up and persistently are worth more because government passes regulations that treat them more favorably when they're able to actually infiltrate the government using their so-called progressive values to be able to gain a competitive advantage over those peer over their peers who don't flaunt those same values. So there's a version of it where either we're in a bubble because capital is being misallocated according to what actually maximizes long-run value, in which case when that bubble bursts, it's going to hurt some of the very people it was supposed to help. Or they're right, but the reason they're right is because they captured government in a way that's an even greater betrayal of all in terms of the citizenry of a democracy that may not lose money when the ESG bubble bursts because it wasn't a bubble. It was even worse than a bubble. It was a new reality that was codified by a new form of crony capitalism that favored the very firms using government and state power at the expense of those who didn't favor those same values. So you know, pick your poison. I think either road leads to a bad place.
Well, I mean, I think this is one of the things we saw at COP26 last week, right? So we had um, we had uh, Mark Carney coming out and announcing that you know, there's now $300 trillion sitting behind the uh, climate change agenda without mentioning that, you know, these dollars are simply dollars that are run by big financial institutions um, and they're not actually invested in the green agenda uh, at all. They're just um, other, pe- other people's money and all kinds of different vehicles. Um, exactly. Exactly right. And you know what I think everyone at the COP26 summit should do? Anyone who's a representative of a democratic nation should take the agreements that they reach and then go back and have them voted on back at home and see how their citizenry actually feels about it. And if you think there's a reason they don't want to do it, then that reveals the essence of the disconnect here is that in the name of being democracies, we're actually converting into a new Holy Roman Empire, a transnational Holy Roman Empire that's advancing certain church-like values in what I view as the new church of fighting climate change. And I say that not because I'm skeptical of certain of the underlying claims. I am skeptical of certain claims, not of others, but because I actually think that it's more nuanced than talking about one green agenda. It's not like there's one monolithic conception of what is more green than something else. The earth, for example, today is covered by greater green surface area, by more plants than it was 50 years ago, in part because the surface temperatures are slightly warmer, in part because there's more carbon in the atmosphere because carbon is plant food. So there's no one monolithic narrative, and we should sort these questions out through free speech and open debate, the really the, the, the building blocks of scientific inquiry and of a democratic process, that's how we should sort these questions out, not through the use of force, including economic force that has it done by fiat instead. Yet that's the world we live in today under the banner of so-called stakeholder capitalism. Okay, interesting that let's pick up on stakeholder capitalism because you know there's this big difference between shareholders and stakeholders. And uh, you know when we talk about uh, stakeholders, I always say that in the UK because everyone's got an auto enrollment uh, pension, a stakeholder and a shareholder, kind of the same thing. But you still need to ask shareholders what they want before you deliver stuff they may not want. But another stakeholder today, of course, is uh, are what you call in your book dictators. You talk about the stakeholder as dictator. And the way, in, the way in which companies are beginning to pander to the kind of stakeholders in the past they may not have pandered to. Exactly. And I think that this is the thing that progressives miss. Once corporations become vectors to advance progressive values, they become vehicles to advance anyone's values. And no one has mastered that dark art better than the Chinese Communist Party which has realized that they can use corporations to create a false moral equivalence between the United States and China, thereby endangering the greatest geopolitical asset of the U.S. of all. That is not our nuclear arsenal. It is our moral standing on the global stage. So let me ask you, Maren, I could go on about this one for a while. I think it's an important topic, but is that something you want to talk a little more about? Yes, it is. So, so let, me, let me just say a word about it then. Take a look at Disney just a few years ago, which says it could not shoot a film in the state of Georgia if Georgia passed the equivalent of a new anti-abortion statute. But last year, it goes to the Shenzhen province of China, literally ground zero of the Uyghur human rights crisis, where there are over one million Uyghurs enslaved in concentration camps, subject to forced sterilization, communist indoctrination, and worse, because they're religious minorities. And Disney does not say a peep. In fact, at the end of the film, you could see it in the credits to the film Milan today. They thank the local CCP authorities for allowing them the privilege of filming there. Nike does the same thing. The NBA does the same thing. BlackRock is perhaps one of the most, most hypocritical actors in this respect. 
professing ESG values here at home, yet lying prostrate before their Chinese overlords abroad. This is the new game where actually what China's been able to do is to deflect accountability for their true macro aggressions by allowing companies to instead criticize microaggressions like transphobia or racism or whatever in the United States. And so when Xi Jinping is pressed by EU leaders, as he was last year on the Uyghur human rights crisis, it's no surprise that the first thing he says is that Black Lives Matter shows that the United States is no better, or that his top diplomat lectures the United States in Alaska this year on how China wants to see the U.S. do better on human rights and to stop slaughtering Black Americans. These would be laughable claims if it weren't for the fact that global corporations are implicitly lending moral credibility to their claims by equating any allegation of, oh, for example, even any inquiry into the origin of the coronavirus pandemic, for that matter, with the equivalent of being a so-called racist inquiry using our own woke values against us. And, you know, we talked a little bit about stakeholder capitalism, Marin. I think that this actually traces itself to a different philosophy of capitalism as a vehicle in the 1990s called democratic capitalism. Back in the 90s, it was a popular idea in the United States on both sides of the political spectrum, by the way, to think that we could use capitalism as a vehicle to spread democracy abroad, that we thought we could export Big Macs and Happy Meals, and somehow that was going to spread democracy to places like China, that we could use our money and our investment to get them to be more like us. They turned that game on its head, and they realized they could actually use their money to get us to be more like them, because they could deny market access to any company that criticized the CCP while rolling out the red carpet to any company that criticized the United States. Even better, they realized they could use our money to get us to be more like them. And they realized they could send back those Nike sneakers and Disney movies as effectively Trojan horses that undermine the United States from within by creating that false moral equivalence between the U.S. and China. And as I said earlier, that erodes our greatest military asset of all. That is not our nuclear arsenal. That is not our naval arsenal. It is our moral standing on the global stage. And I'm sorry to say it is working masterfully for the CCP. Okay. This is a horrible situation, the way you describe it, and I agree with you on most of it. It's also something that I'm guessing the majority of the American population are not particularly happy with. I mean, I don't know about it in the US, but certainly if you ask in surveys here, should business and politics mix? Should big companies have a view on cultural identity issues, et cetera? The majority generally answer, no, they shouldn't. They should make good stuff, be nice to their employees along the way, and kind of sell it in a reasonable way. And that's kind of it. And then distribute the, the, the profits into our pensions. And we're kind of done there. Um, and I assume the majority of Americans feel much the same. I think that's true. And, I, and that's why I think this is gonna, we're going to see a course correction happen very soon. I hope the course correction takes a good form rather than a bad form. The bad form is if we start to get businesses that respond and say, oh, yeah, well, you're for Democrats, well, then we're for Republicans. You're for black people, well, then we're for white people. And in a way that further divides and fractures society. I think that could be a commercial opportunity that's available to a lot of people. You know, let's say Major League Baseball issues statements about a new voting law in Georgia that make it sound more like a super PAC than a soft drink manufacturer, favoring one end of the political spectrum. I certainly hope 
we don't see the emergent the emergence of an alternative form of baseball in response. Cause I think that one of the beautiful things about the private sector, one of the beautiful things about sports, about the arts, about the apolitical spaces in our lives is that they bring us together irrespective of our race or our gender or our politics. And I think that's one of the roles of, of capitalism and a, a and an apolitical marketplace in an otherwise divided polity is to provide those social forces that result in cohesion across division. It's actually what, what Tocqueville many years ago remarked upon in the United States was the existence of those so-called intermediating institutions that otherwise held a divided, dispersed nation together as one. So I hope that's not the way it goes. Now, the way I do hope it goes is that maybe as some of those businesses start up in a more elegant way, serving customers who may feel left behind by this new trend, that wakes up the rest of corporate America to say, oh boy, we just lost a million customers to this new business that's operating according to political principles. Gee, we probably screwed that up over the last 10 years. Let's course correct a little bit and use market mechanisms to bring that back. I, I, I think it will depend on what kind of leaders step up in the private sector to determine which of those two paths we're on. I also think that public policy can play a role to create the conditions for that cultural revival. I don't think the solution is a legal one, but I think Certain legal solutions can create the conditions for that cultural revival. I lay those out in the book. One of them, simple, simple enough, is that I would say we should make political belief and political expression a protected class, just like race and gender and sexual orientation and religion and national origin. That is to say, so long as we have protected classes at all, which is an idea that we can debate, but so long as we have them at all, then we should apply those standards even handedly to include political belief and political expression too, that cause people to liberate themselves from this culture of fear that we're experiencing today. And so I think that'll also be one of the ingredients towards a solution. But uh, as I said, Maren, we could we could barely skim the surface in a half hour. That's why you'll have to read the book uh, to Everyone's be able to read, read the book. Yeah. Everyone's going to read the book. Let me ask you one more thing, uh, two more things, actually. First, um, you, you mentioned earlier the, the sideshow of the fact that the big fund management companies have all the power, use all the votes, that we've delegated our responsibilities effectively as shareholder Democrats to them. Do you see any future in which, because there are, there are movements springing up here, any future by which the big fund management companies will be effectively forced to return our votes to us and hence respond to what it is that their end clients want? Because that seems to me to be a big part, potentially, of the solution. Yeah, so look, I think that uh, it's, it's, it's an important component to it. And, and you're one of the few people actually who's focusing on it. I actually think we are going to see that trend, a, dem- a re-democratization of the ability for people to vote their own shares. I don't think that's going to be the end-all be-all solution, but it is another example of the pendulum swinging back in the right direction in a way that restores a greater sense of democracy to at least the way people have their own voice attached to their own shares. To be clear, that still doesn't solve for the fact that the people who own the most shares will still have the greatest say. And that's something that I think ought not be the case on moral matters that a society ought to address through democracy. I think it's perfectly fine to determine who's elected to Apple's board of directors or to determine which products rise to the top in a marketplace of products. Yes, it's a one dollar, one vote system. But when settling moral questions, we ought to have a one person, one vote system. So you know, there's only a step in the right direction. But today we have even a worse, a worse perversion of that system where even the people whose dollars it is don't always get to even express their own voice because the people who manage their dollars, like the Larry Finks of the world, get to express their views for them, often in ways that betray their own views in the process. We've already seen in the last month some change in that regard. Actually, BlackRock under pressure 
has begun to say certain investors and certain of their funds will get to vote their own shares. I think it's a step in the right direction, but I think it's a pendulum that's going to have to swing much further. So how do, last question, I promise, how do investors navigate this? So look, I think that there's going to be a couple emerging trends. I think there's going to be a, a rise of businesses who are actually created to serve the tens of millions, perhaps hundreds of millions of customers who are quietly disaffected from their private sector, but to do it in ways that are elegant rather than combative. I think those businesses, if they're run well by the right people and have high quality products, are going to be winners, are going to be undervalued on day one. I think there are a number of capital market distortions created by the rise of the ESG movement, certain businesses that are over-invested in, other businesses that are under-invested in. I think it's a great opportunity for value investors to be able to take advantage of today. And I think those will be the right ways in which investors can see opportunity to make money for themselves. I'm personally much more interested in seeing the revival of a civic politic and a body politic and a civic restoration that goes beyond just how you know certain investors can use this to create profit for themselves. But I actually think that could actually be a force for good too. As investors capture that opportunity, they're helping actually swing the pendulum back for the better too. So those are some those are some closing thoughts, Marin, and of course much more detail laid out in the book. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for making the time to talk to us, Vivek. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, John, that was recorded a couple of years ago, as discussed at the beginning, but still pretty interesting, right? He's fairly prescient. Yeah, I mean, there's... Uh, to be honest, I read through the transcript again. There's not really anything that I would say jumps out as having been wrong. Mm, and the only mm. thing that's changed is that absolutely the, the tone has now shifted. And, and we're starting to see a lot of the things that he kind of mentioned uh, coming through. 
where, you know, as you said at the start of the, the show, it's like two weeks ago, it just took one basically random by-election result for net zero to suddenly no longer be the political consensus. And it's interesting how that's all changed. And I, I still sort of see it as a, a zero interest rate thing. Or, you know, I know you do. That. But that's so interesting. Can you just just explain to our listeners what you think about this? Because... You know, I I totally get what you're saying, that there's something to do with the changing interest rate environment that has changed politics and changed the environment around the culture wars. But how does that work in your head? Well, maybe it's just because I'm obsessed with central banks and interest rates. But I think, so like, I would just say that for, since 2008, we've kind of had this weird kind of uh, fire blanket sitting on top of the economy in the form of somewhat... Uh, repressive kind of zero percent interest rates and whenever we got inflation coming back due to you know yes it was obvious what would happen but for some reason it took everyone by surprise the sort of re-acceleration of the economy and the waking up of the economy if you like I think has kind of taken all of these rather flimsy ideas that came about as a kind of almost a form of magical thinking during the zero interest rate era and basically just trashed them all by subjecting them to a bit of hard reality. So you're talking about everything from modern monetary theory to on the other side, kind of like, you know, cryptocurrencies to an ESG, I think was very much part of that sort of um, kind of, oh look, maybe we can have capitalism that's based on a whole load of, somewhat idealistic views on uh, and not terribly well thought through things and it kind of detached from reality really it's, it's like it's like Ed Conway was talking about with the material world and the uh, ethereal world it's like we've kind of all been living in the ethereal world and now the material world is making itself felt again suddenly make itself felt and it's also about the fact that for a long time you could pretend that things would cost nothing because it kind of didn't cost yeah. anything. Because yeah. if you can borrow for nothing, everything's free. And it's interesting that the beginning of the pushback against net zero, which I think is absolutely fascinating, by the way, is based on the fact that people are beginning to see what they have to pay for it. And they say, well, what do I get for that? What do I get for that? What do I get for that? And if the answer is, as Tony Blair said the other day, very little, because it doesn't matter how much the UK cuts its carbon emissions, it doesn't begin to touch the size of the problem, uh, given what's happening around the rest of the world. And then you have this bizarre situation where net zero is one of the few things that we have to pay for. We have to pay for everything, obviously. One of the few things that we have to pay for immediately and out of our own accounts. So all the other things that feel good, like improving the NHS or better education, all that kind of thing, we might have to pay a little bit more in tax and it comes out of a big generalized account. But some mm-hmm. of the net zero policies, of course, everyone would like not zero, net zero. But you have to pay for your own heat pump with a little subsidy. But nonetheless, that's your checkbook, that is. They won't have a checkbook anymore. You know what I mean. Um, you have to pay for an electric car. That's, again, that's your checkbook or modern equivalent, etc. All these things come directly from your pocket for the individual net zero related product. And that's a very different dynamic to any of the other things that, that we want to pay for. And as soon as that cost hit... The feel-good factor, the feel-good factor vanishes. And there's a lot of that kind of of insight in what Vivek has to say in in that interview and and in his book. And he also, one of the, I was just reading, as you did through the transcript, and looking at a couple of things that we talked about, the return of shareholder democracy 
Mm. Absolutely happening. Absolutely happening with as as we discussed in that Black BlackRock at the forefront of saying, look, actually, this is too much for us, all this this woke stuff and corporate responsibility and ESG, et cetera. How about you just, you know, take your votes back, do it yourself. And then he also talked about um about he didn't actually use the phrase go woke, go broke, but he talked about uh, you know companies that might go too far down this road and find themselves with a massive rebellion from customers who who don't accept the ideology that that, that they produce. So you know, of course, we've seen that, haven't we? In in um, uh, Budweiser beer and a few a few other brands. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I th- think he was spot on about most of those things. And and the other interesting thing is the um, I mean, the net zero thing that gets me is that. It's, it's more about politicians being given the political permission to give voice to a whole load of concerns that people already mm. have. Mm. Because the, the thing that I think is, 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 I find it mildly irritating. So, so this by-election happened and it was over this ULES thing. So the extension of this kind of low emission zone to a specific part of uh, London. And what people are actually objecting to is that is people who own cars currently and live in that bit were suddenly going to get charged because they had you know these kind of as, as i understand it they had these kind of you know diesel cars so basically there's an impertinence to somebody coming along and saying you know how you know you live here and you park your car in front of your house every every day now you're going to have to pay for that so what they're objecting to is not even as abstract as some kind of you know esg thing it's somebody coming along and suddenly taxing them for something that they feel is absolutely their right to mm, have. Mm. And that it's, you know, completely, it's actually very regressive as well. We start Incredibly regressive. You know. So, but, but my point is, it's like, there are very specific reasons why this particular type of tax, like, is actually outrageous and, and terribly cheeky. And people kind of like voted against that. So it's actually not particularly tied to the wider kind of net zero stuff. But the point is, is this particular by-election result that has enabled kind of like Rishi and all the other kind of like politicians to turn around and give voice to the wider concerns that people have. You know, so it's, it's, it's more, the, it's, there's the kind of arbitrariness of, all right, well, suddenly people are allowed to talk about this because mm. something basically mm. unconnected happened. And what would have happened if, you know, they'd gone the other way and Labour had actually won? You know, we'd, we wouldn't be talking about it now. Which, I mean, I think that's, that's kind of sobering. We wouldn't be talking about it now, but something else would have opened the floodgates at some point, I think. And at some point, you know, politicians will, would have realised that that's, that too much cost piled too much on individuals and particularly on the individuals who have, have the least money was going to provoke some kind of, of backlash. It would have happened. It's just a matter of what, what it was that was going to trigger it. But you're right, the, this was it. And as you say, this, is not even a, this was not even specifically a net zero policy, right? This is a, ULES is a pollution policy. Yeah, and also, like I say, it's, it's the, the format of the tax is kind of, it's, it's the cheekiness of it rather than, mm. Um, mm. you know, oh wait, you know, you're telling me it's something that I've done for ages and that is on my own land, if you like, is now being taxed because, you know, you don't like it anyway. That, I think it's that sort of element here. You know, it's a bit like inheritance tax. Everybody objects to inheritance tax, not because most people get hit by it, but because of the cheek of kind of like telling somebody just after they've had a bereavement, oh, by the way, you was a load of tax. Um, it's, it's a kind of motive thing rather than anything else. Mm, mm. And I wonder if they will now begin to look at um, uh, ESG policies and ESG regulation and say, well, maybe that's just too much for this company. 
You know, we just wanted to make some stuff, sell some stuff, make some money, send us the dividends and these many, many overlays of regulation are actually pushing it and make it stop. Well, yeah, because it's interesting because BP is kind of pedaled back from oh, yeah, it's kind of green stuff. Um, and with, imp- with impunity, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, because it's an oil company. It's, like, it's an oil company. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's like yeah. well, closing the name, you know. Um, and I think it's, I mean, it's good that this stuff is going by the wayside because it's, you know, it's not uh, very democratic as, as he points out. I think that's a really good point that he makes, um, you know, because, and I think that was, I'm not sure that actually Milton Friedman didn't bring that up. I mean, you know, I think Milton Friedman talked about that a fair bit as well. Um, but you know, if you're, if you're pushing, if you're using profits to push a different agenda, it's political rather than designed to make more profit, then that is something that undermines democracy because it's not getting the scrutiny and it's not getting, you know, people aren't able to vote for it. Um, so I think that was a really good point. But yeah, I do, it does seem as if we're seeing a, a retreat from that. And I think companies will be glad of that. Um, you know, I think I mean, companies will day, be extremely glad of it. It's been yeah. a very difficult period for companies. Yeah, it's hard enough to make money at the best of times. It's extremely hard to have to conform to many, many uh, you know, cultural strictures and ESG-related regulation at the same time. Just not to say, by the way, that it should be total f- free for all out there. But um, uh, you know, there's been an awful lot added very, very quickly. Yeah, and you know, and all of this stuff is more that this stuff does need democratic oversight. It's like. It's, it's more when kind of companies are sort of starting to do massive overreach and kind of decide that oh, oh no, these are things that should be uh, essentially be, be be laws or cultural norms where people are saying, well, hold on a minute, who who voted for this or where do we discuss this or is there no way to kind of like raise my own point of view about this particular decision um, without you know being shouted down by a, a kind of group of people who think they're better than me, so I think that that it will be good to exit that particular environment. You're running for a political office, John. I mean, I, I'm sure I could get four percent. I think oh, I, I think reckon, I think American voters would like eight. the accent. Do you think? <laughs> <laughs> you had to be born in America to go for American president. I was thinking more of you as a you know local MP. Gradually, oh, okay. working your, <laughs> gradually working your way up to junior minister. God, that's a bit un- unambitious. Don't you think? Okay, you're right. You can do more. <laughs> now, what, what, where do you think Vivek's going to get to? Where is this journey of his going to end? <laughs> I mean, I can't see him being president. I mean, I don't really fully wrap my head around US politics, but it's uh, it seems quite sewn up from the point of view of whoever the big people are. But then again. You know, I mean, no idea Trump was going to become president either, so you never know. There you go. I don't know. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I think he's going to top out at 14%. No, that's pretty good. Yeah. I plucked that completely from the air. I have no idea. No more I was about, just going to you know, say. I, I know no more you're... about American politics than you. I think let's go on holiday, John. Let's go back to our holiday. Good idea. Good idea. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's bonus episode of Merrin Talks Money. We are still technically on our summer break, so we should be back on the 8th of September. But again, you never know when we'll be inspired to drop another bonus, so do keep an eye on your feed. In the meantime, if you like our show, rate it, review it, and subscribe it wherever you listen to your podcasts positively, please. 
This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset Webb. It was produced by Samasadi, additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Vivek Ramaswamy, to John Stepik, and the Money Week team for kindly agreeing to have us re-release this episode. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.